Welcome to Fundamentally Human, a podcast about mental health topics unpacked in an easy-to-understand way. My name is Shervin, and I'm your host. Let's get started. In many of my podcast episodes, I try to look at a situation from another perspective or broaden the listener's perspectives, and that's typically a topic that I'll try to explore or a skill set that I try to include and incorporate. I also appreciate having guests share their own perspectives because it can be difficult at times to relate or learn about something that you haven't experienced before. So I've spoken a lot about my experiences as an Asian female, and I've often wondered what it would be like if, you know, I was born with other identifiers. What if I was born male? What if I was born white, gay, from a different socioeconomical background? And a lot of these questions I don't really have the answer to, but I thought it would be great to be able to explore them. Today, I'm joined by Shane Rogers, the host of Midnight Facts for Insomniacs, to share what double standards have been like from his perspective. Thanks for joining us today, Shane. Can you introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, As you mentioned, I am uh, the co-host of Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. It's a podcast of fascinating facts, uh, everything from Scientology to cryptids to the history of personality tests. We cover kind of a little bit of everything. It's all chosen by our listeners. Uh, It's a lot of fun. And I'm also a comedian. I've been doing comedy, um, just getting back into it after COVID now. Uh, but I've been doing comedy for pre-COVID for about almost 10 years. I was at the 10-year mark when, when COVID hit. Thanks for being here today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. With the Scientology topic that you just mentioned, actually, that's something I've thought about. What it would have been like if I was born as a Scientologist or if my family was in Scientology what can you say about that? Oh, Scientology is fascinating. Um, you know, with the internet, ironically, it has really, it's, it's, it's going away. Scientology is, uh, used to be incredibly popular as, a, as an alternative religion. Uh, it was growing really fast. For a long time, it was kind of one of the fastest growing religions. Uh, but the internet really exposed everything about Scientology. I mean, it is wacky. If you know the story behind L. Ron Hubbard and, uh, and the creation of Scientology and then the mythology behind Scientology, uh, it's, it's really bonkers. I mean, you know, it's like a science fiction book. There's Xenu, the galactic warlord who, you know, created the, who dropped a bunch of, I guess they're aliens at the time, but they were like humanoid aliens into volcanoes and their souls populated the earth and, and became us. It's just, it's really crazy. And you didn't learn about that stuff in Scientology until you got to what they called OT3 or operating Thetan level three. Anyway, there's a lot to it. Uh, but <laughs> but most people didn't know when they when they joined Scientology, they thought it was sort of this, you know, it was it was a um, it was an alternative to psych to psychology. It was an alternative to therapy. They do what's called auditing. And so it felt like it was very um like it was very grounded and and based in science. It's called Scientology. And they didn't know about the science fiction weirdness and aspects. And now you can go online and just find that find that stuff out. And so Scientology actually is is really struggling because now that people sort of know their I guess all their secrets, you could say, um, there are, it's estimated that there's around like fifty thousand Scientologists in the world, which is nothing. I mean, that's less than my you know, that's probably less than uh, some podcasts get. Our our podcast probably has has almost 
uh, as much of a, a fan base as Scientology, which is crazy to think. So it's actually, um, you know, people think of Scientology as being this this huge, weird cult. And it's actually something that's really struggling right now. Uh, they just they have a lot of money. That's the one thing. Scientology is incredibly, incredibly um, rich. And uh, and the guy who is running it now is is also pretty shady. There's a lot to it. And I do encourage people to go listen to that episode or look into Scientology. There's an amazing book called uh, Going Clear, which is the best, I, th I think, the best resource and the best source if you're interested in the history of Scientology. Yeah, I think I started to learn about it when it was more popular in pop culture with Tom Cruise and I think mm -hmm. Leah Remini. Is that how you pronounce her name? But just how she talked about it and how she was born into it and how she disagrees with a lot of their values. And I wonder, you know, based on where you're born, what ethnicity you are, how much money your family has, there's so many different factors that can really change the way you see the world. And when I think about it, sometimes I get so overwhelmed because it's like, oh my God, just the smallest little things can really change someone's course of life or change someone's perspective on something else. And I wonder with you, Shane, if you've ever thought about what it would be like to be born differently. Yeah, I, I think about that a lot. I think probably most people wonder what their life would be like if they were a different gender, a different ethnicity, if you'd been born in a different socioeconomic situation. That's something I do think about a lot, partly because, you know, my life in a lot of ways has changed over the years. I was born in a very different socioeconomic situation than I'm in now. Um, my mom was a single mom growing up. We were not, we didn't have much money. We grew up in San Francisco uh, in a very, you know, we, I, I wouldn't say, I don't think it's fair to say that we were poor, but we were, uh, you know, we shared a, a tiny one room apartment. My mom slept in the living room. I slept in the, the only bedroom. It was a very different life. And over the years, my mom was able to, she kind of raised herself up. She started actually working as an executive in um, the ophthalmology industry. And uh, now she's, she makes a very comfortable living. She's, she's doing quite well. She and her, her husband um, own a big house. And, you know, it's, it's just we have a different life and, and kind of move in different circles than we did when, when I was younger. And so that, to me, has really sparked a lot of a lot of speculation in my mind as to, you know, what life would have been like if I had grown up the way that, that I live now, um, because I didn't have a lot of the opportunities that I had later in life um, when I was young. And so, yeah, I think about I think about that a lot. Those are and then also um, my wife is black. And so uh, being in an interracial relationship and, you know, we've been together about eight years um, it's something that I constantly think about. She grew up in Georgia outside of right outside of Atlanta in very different circumstances, uh, middle class, but uh, but just a very different, you know, life experience than I have. And so I'm sort of confronted with that every day with the reality of, of the differences between us. And so I think about that a lot, what it would have been like to have grown up different, a different race, a different gender or a different uh, economic situation. Thanks for sharing that. And for our listeners who can't see you the way I do right now, how would you identify yourself? I am your standard uh, white cis male. I am a pretty generic, generic dude. 
so, you know, I'm, I'm, I have every, other than the fact that, like I said, I, I grew up not super financially advantaged. Other than that, I have pretty much every, um, you know, every advantage that, that you can have in American society. And what kind of interracial situations have you and your wife experienced? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we live in California, so we are in an area that is very, very accepting of differences. There mm -hmm. are not in, in Santa Cruz, California, where I live specifically, ironically, for a very liberal area um, and, a, and a college town, actually, UC Santa Cruz is, is you know, pretty well known. Um, it's not a diverse town at all. There is there's actually a, a pretty sizable Asian population. But beyond that, um, my wife is the only black person I've seen in the town that we live in, which is called Aptos. It's right next to Santa Cruz. I, I think she's probably the only black person within a, you know, m at least a half mile radius of us. Um, and if there are any other black people, there's maybe one or two. Uh, we don't see uh, African-Americans on a daily basis. And so it's it's very interesting here. Um everyone is very accepting and everyone is very nice. We don't deal with, with racism, outright racism. We're, we're very lucky in that way. We're in an area where if anything, there's almost a deference to our situation because it's different. And, you know, if we go to a restaurant, they're going to be very careful to make sure that we get seated quickly because they don't want to, you know, oh my God, there's one black person in this whole place and they don't want to look like they're, they're discriminating. So in some ways people are overly, careful oh, around us you know um so that's been interesting it, you know in some ways i think people go out of their way to prove that they're not racist i think everyone's worried about it but we've gone to different areas you know we we have traveled a lot um and doing comedy we i've i've done comedy in little tiny towns in in central california and in you know other states um and she's come with me and there have been weird looks um ironically one of the one of the things that we've gotten is with with actually with African-Americans, some African-American men have have made comments and things to her. You know, she'll stand up to go to the bathroom and there will be someone there who will be like, oh, I see, you, you know, you had to go for a white boy. So wow. we've gotten that from, you know, where we are, we're going we're not going to get that as much from white people. Ironically, they're just going to be very careful. But we have we have we've gotten it occasionally every now and then there is just you know, I, you're, you're going to get weird looks, you're going to get a lot of interest in your relationship. I've had, I've had inappropriate comments, you know, that that weren't even insulting. I've had white comedian friends of mine who I remember coming up to me early in my relationship with with my wife and, and when we were just dating and saying, Whoa, man, how did you get a black girl? Like, it's so hard to for white guys to get black girls. Like, how did you how did you end? How'd you hook a black girl? You know, I mean, it's just like just things that are not that I didn't know how to deal with that I wasn't expecting and in, you know, insensitivities to 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 differences. Um, but we're, we're very lucky in the area that we're in and the time that we're in. I think as much as there is as there is, there are racial issues and there is still obviously a lot of ignorance in the world. We are living in probably the most quote woke time to to be in <laughs> in in history. And and you know as we sure. go forward, hopefully it will become more and more accepting. But right now, 
it's pretty rare that that I think we would encounter any overt racism, but it does happen. I mean, one thing that happened with Jody, um, she was walking home, and we live now in a, in a very in an upscale neighborhood. Um, you know, we're right by the beach. It's very like it's it's an expensive area. We're in a tiny little place, but but we are in a nice place. And um, she was walking home, and and on two separate occasions, one there was a police officer that asked her what she was, why she was in this neighborhood late at night um he said you know where where are you from what are you doing here and she said i live here and he said no you don't and you know i mean you just don't you don't expect that in this area uh that also happened in the last place we used to live which was also a nice area with just a guy who was a neighbor and we had recently moved there and he said what you know where are you coming from and what are you doing because she was out at at night um walking to to her house so it is something that people, I think, without even trying, you you see their unintentional biases come out. But other than that, like I said, we've, we've been very lucky. We're in a place where on a daily basis, we don't deal with a lot of discrimination. And that really resonates with the topic of today of double standards. Because I imagine if you were Black or if your wife was white or Asian or something else, then maybe the responses would be different and people wouldn't react or say certain things because even if people are trying to not look racist in a sense, it's almost, it's a double edged sword where they're trying to not be one way, but it comes off another way. You know, if Jody was white, then they would probably not try to see her so quickly either. I get where they're coming from, but it's also like, hmm, <laughs> what is, yeah. what are you trying to say here too? Yeah. It's There's definitely some, you know, virtue signaling, there um and it also depends on the t- the the specific dynamics of of the interracial relationship like i i happen to know um a white woman who who is married to a black man and they get a little bit more pushback than we do a little bit more discrimination than we do i mean i think that there is white men find black men and white women to be a little more threatening sometimes or, or a little more objectionable. I think we happen to be in a situation that's pretty rare. It, it's it's a little more rare to have white men and black women. And there just isn't all that much. There's not as much of a history of, of you know, there's such, uh, there's so much resistance to the idea of black men and white women historically, right? It's like black men are predators who are preying on white women. And then, you know, they have, they're well endowed and they're just threatening to, to, to white society in a lot of ways that I think the pairing of a white man and a black woman doesn't have that, those same connotations. And so I think we are privileged in some ways that we are a, a particular interracial couple that seems to be a little bit more acceptable for some reason, because it's just rare and it doesn't offend very many people on these sort of on these very fundamental levels that other pairings might, you know, where you see uh, these very traditional racist tropes of like the white man and the Asian woman, you know, that that's something that, that triggers a lot of people these days. Um, Black man and and white woman that triggers people. Whereas white man and black woman, it just kind of, for some reason it sort of goes under the radar and people are just like, Oh, that's weird. You know? So we're a little bit, again, we're a little bit privileged in that way. And I also wonder if it's because, you know, as a man, a white man, you quote unquote, from what I've heard or seen, you, you're the one in power, you're the one who wears the pants. So because of that, you were the one who willingly made this choice. Whereas if it was a white woman being female and choosing to marry a black man, 
maybe she's been preyed on, like you said, or the man's a predator, or he has something against her. Why would she pick a black person? And I hope society has changed over the years to not be like this or for everyone to be this way. But I can imagine that's probably what a lot of people have thought about in the past. Absolutely. That's a really perceptive comment. I hadn't really thought about it that way. But yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. I think a lot of these things we kind of realize, we've kind of seen, but we don't actually recognize the impact that it has had on people. So I'm glad that we're able to just freely and openly explore all these topics because on the Asian perspective, if there's an Asian guy going for a white girl, usually what I've seen and heard is Asian men will feel that they're not as sexy or confident. They don't look as good. They aren't as big as the white or black counterparts, so they're not as attractive to white women. And then on the flip side, if there's a white guy going for an Asian woman, and I'll just use women and men as the two genders we're talking about today, but for a white guy to go for Asian woman, there are a lot of jokes about how he has Asian fever, how he's going for, you know, Asian girls because he thinks they're small and petite and cute. And those are a lot of the stereotypes that I heard growing up. Did you hear similar ones in California or the States? These are the ones that I've heard um, more so in Canada and Vancouver, and I know in some pop culture. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, we're in we're right next to Silicon Valley here. And so there is, the, I, I think, the white man, Asian woman trope is really is really ingrained here the idea that like all of these white tech bros want to date <laughs> asian women it's just a thing um and you know i mean at fundamentally i think there's probably some element of i don't want to say there's there's truth to it i just want to say you know i think that that there is a, a phenomenon of white men looking at asian women sort of sexualizing them and looking at them as um submissive and as you know, they look they look at them as as sort of um, a trophy in a lot of ways to like have an Asian woman, and and so I think that when people see that pairing, that is what comes to mind a lot of times is like okay, well that the assumption is that that's what's happening that he is you know that that there's a white guy who is preying on this Asian woman or or that she found him attractive because he's more masculine than an Asian guy. Um, and, and I think you get that from both sides. White people look at that as like, oh, he's fetishizing her. And maybe Asian men look at that as like, oh, she's, you know, she's, she has white fever or something. She's going for, you know, she's not, I mean, what do they call her? Like a Twinkie or something, right? Which is like yep. yellow on the outside and white on the inside. I mean, you just, you do hear that stuff all growing up in, in, in the Bay Area. Certainly that was um, really prevalent. And, you know, my uncle actually is is married to an Asian woman. And yeah, I mean, that's something that I think that they have that he's heard a lot. You get that. I remember him just talking about a lot of meeting a lot of guys and sort of similar to what I experienced, where guys would kind of come up and just kind of elbow and be like, oh, you you know, you got one, you know, you, you got a, a hot Asian wow. Look at you. nicely done. So, yeah, I mean, there is just it's I think it's very there is some truth to this idea that people make those assumptions immediately and that those assumptions probably have for some unfortunate situations, they, there is probably some grounding. In fact, I do know, 
you know, I know guys who I guess you could say have sort of a quote Asian fetish who are just they only date a white guys who only date Asian women. And, you know, it, it, that's confusing for me. I, I don't know whether or not that's how to feel about it. I don't know if that's just a preference and we all have our preference and that's normal or if it's objectifying and fetishizing. I, I, I don't know, but that's just what they like. And, and it, you, these things are complicated. They're nuanced. It, and it's that's what makes it hard to kind of parse out, you know. I really like the distinction that you made where on one hand there's preference and then the other hand it's objectifying. Are you interested in the person for who they are as cliche as that sounds, or are you doing or going for this person because of something that they identify with, namely in this case, their culture. And earlier you brought up some really good words about being submissive and you know, growing up an Asian female, I, you know what, when I think about it, that's how my parents have wanted to be me to be all my life, you know, to be pale as possible, to be thin and small, to not talk back, to be agreeable, to seem very polite. I mean, you know, of course, it's good to be polite and respectful, but they really pushed it to me in a way where by having all these traits, it was so I could get married. So someone would find me attractive, in all of those check boxes that they had for me. And actually I do like everything to go the opposite way of what my parents have told me. You know, I go lift weights, I go run outside and get a tan and they're just like, Oh my gosh, stop. Don't wear this. Don't wear that. You know, try to be the small Asian girl, be polite. And I think a lot of these stereotypes that have been built is also a result of generational trauma and what our parents or history has written for us. And, you know, if you are um, Asian, let's say in Korea, there's a huge culture in K-pop where a lot of the celebrity celebrities there are attractive if they're pale, if they have double eyelids, they have long black hair, and they're thin and have a 24-inch waist. That is the recipe for being an attractive uh, celebrity in Korea. And I think these standards are so pushed on women, especially that it just keeps building to these stereotypes. And when other people look for these women or the stereotypes, they think, okay, this is what I look for. And people just become objectified. So that's my really long spiel of how there's so many different factors that add to why people might go for a certain way. It's because that's all we've been taught to. Yeah, absolutely. And it is interesting. I mean, like I said, it's it's very complicated because we can we can you know, we can we can look at this as people just having unrealistic expectations based on cultural uh you know, what we assume that someone is going to be like based on their culture, right? Stereotypes. Um, but in some cases, these stereotypes have a grounding in tradition and history. Like, like you said, you know, it, it, it's probably not great for a guy to want to date Asian women because he assumes that they're going to be submissive. And yet at the same time, in that culture, there has been a push for women to be more submissive. And so it comes from a place that there is some kind of truth there. Um, whether that's, you know, that's probably not a good thing going forward, but there is, there is in some ways truth to these stereotypes and yet we perpetuate them by embracing the, you know, these, these traits that we expect. I, I'm, I'm making this seem more complicated than, I'm trying, than it is in my <laughs> head, but you know, like one, one thing that I find interesting, for instance, is I know that when my mom was younger, 
my grandfather, she brought home an African-American guy one time who she was going on a date with, and my grandfather freaked out. And my grandfather was a complicated guy, and I, I think he had a lot of issues. He, he certainly probably had some ingrained stereotypes. But I think part of it also that he was really upset about was the fact that she potentially was making her life harder. Like it wasn't even necessarily that he didn't want her dating a black man, but the idea that like, why are you doing this to yourself? Society is going to punish you for this. And so even though it's not okay, it's not okay to judge someone's relationship at the time, you know, this was, I guess the 1970s. Um, my grandfather, you can kind of understand where it comes from. He was like, don't date a black man. You're going to make your life harder. So it wasn't even necessarily that he didn't want her to date a black man. He didn't want her to put herself in a situation that was going to, that society was going to judge harshly. And so it's, it's hard because a lot of these things are again, more nuanced than they come off. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that my grandpa was a terrible racist person, although I think he definitely had some, some ingrained <laughs> biases, but I think also there's just a reality of like, you know, we, you, you have to accept the fact that if you're going to be in an interracial relationship, especially in that time, in that area, and that particular type of interracial relationship, that you are setting yourself up for a, for a, a challenge. It's going to be, it's going to be hard. And so that's what makes this so complicated is that there are these underlying uncomfortable realities behind a lot of the stereotypes and the, and the tropes and the, and, and the things that we would like to pretend don't exist, but they are there. And so it is, it's all complicated. And something I talk a lot about is really defining what normal looks like. And a lot of people say, oh, that's not normal. But the thing is, normal is so different for everyone and for my parents. And this has really helped me because as a teenager growing up, I was very resentful of them because they had such a completely different view from me who has grown up in a Western society. But their normal was that there was no such thing as being gay and a major example of a double standard with them and i don't really hold this against them because it's just what they learned and what their normal was growing up but with ellen degeneres they always thought she was really funny quirky and they would laugh at things she said because i had her on the background um, after school when i was younger and then one day i told them i was like oh did you know that ellen's gay and the moment i said that they just completely went 180 didn't like her anymore, didn't really want to watch her, didn't want me to watch her. But the thing is, when I questioned that and I asked, well, what changed? She's not a different person. The way she recorded today is not different from the way she recorded her show yesterday. She really hasn't changed fundamentally from what you've known her other than the fact that you know she's gay. And their response at that time was, well, that's not normal. That's not right. Something is wrong with her because she's gay. And with these biases that just get built up, I think now with our, with our generation, like you said, I love the word woke. It's true. We are more woke now. We can change a lot of these narratives, but it's also really hard to because we've learned from our parents, we're learning from media, and then just from state to state or country to country, everyone has such a different understanding of what you know, a normal looks like or what healthy looks like. And I think that just makes us so much harder because we're all trying to figure out that fine balance. But it's, on one end, it's super tipped and the other side is completely on the other end of the spectrum. And it makes us so messy. 
So my question, I guess, for you, Shane, is what do you do to manage some of your biases or trying to open up your perspectives to look at other views? Well, it's funny you bring up Ellen. I mean, that was one thing that I figured we talk about a little bit was um, women in comedy, because as a Mm -hmm. comedian, you know, something that I that is very ingrained in the comedy community, unfortunately, are these unconscious biases when it comes to gender. Um, I have friends who are liberal and you would consider probably pretty woke and feel totally comfortable just saying, oh, I, I don't think women are funny. Like, you know, female comics just don't do it for me. Um, and it's it's something that I've seen persist even as the society as a whole has become more and more woke or at least more and more accepting of differences and less comfortable with blanket statements like that. Like the idea that women aren't funny is just such a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, there are, you know, there there are so many female comics and female comedic actresses that are beloved and are hilarious. And for anyone to just say women aren't funny is just, it's, it, not only is it horribly sexist, it's also just logistically nonsensical, but people are still comfortable saying things like that. Um, and I have, you know, I, I know from comedy clubs that I've been that I've been to the first comedy club that I ever got, uh, quote, passed at, which is how you how you start working at a club. Uh, Rooster Tea Feathers, it's a it's a woman owned and operated comedy club. And the manager there would go out of her way to book female female headliners. And she would always see at least a 30 percent drop off. And these are people who don't have, you know, recognizable names. I know one of the first people I opened for there was Carmen Lynch. Um, she was on America's Got Talent. She's she's a very you know she she's not a famous top tier comedian, but she has a following and she is you know a touring a touring headliner. And um, but the next weekend I opened for Giannis Papas, who's definitely the same level as she is. And you know Heather, who ran the club, said I'm always going to get a thirty percent drop off whenever it's a female headliner, wow. and that some female headliners would in fact have names they would choose a stage name for themselves that was more gender non-specific so that if people didn't know who they were they might assume that it was a man um because there is just an automatic drop-off for female headliners obviously you have your famous comics you know eliza schlesinger is going to always sell out but if you're an if if you're an unknown if you're a comic who is at mid mid level uh if you have a female name you're just there's going to be less interest and and it's going to be harder um and conversely, starting out as a woman is easier because every smaller show these days where money isn't really a factor, where they're not trying to, to make a ton of money on it, but they're just, you know, starting out, they're, they're trying to book women because they have to make a diverse show. So it's easier as a woman when you're starting out to get booked, and then it's much harder later as you progress through your career. So I've seen a lot of double standards in the industry. Um, and... It, it really does open your eyes to what people deal with, even today, even in our quote unquote enlightened society, what what women and people of color and, and are dealing with. I I've even dealt with double standards and I certainly don't want to. I'm not that guy who's going to say, you know, political correctness. Oh, God, it's it's ruining America or something. That's not me. I, I'm totally fine with <laughs> with. But, you know, it, it is it is an interesting double standard to me. One of the things in comedy that I deal with, I, I'm in an interracial relationship. But as a white cis man, it is harder for me to talk about, you know, I, and I've noticed this change over the last 
10 years that I've been doing comedy. When I started, you know, eight years ago, when Jody and I started dating, I could do I could bring up my relationship and say, like, my, my wife is black and and talk about our relationship and make jokes about it. And it was it, it was much more acceptable. Now, if I say if I just go on stage tomorrow and say my wife is black, the audience is going to tense up. They're just going to get nervous. You. Well, I don't know if they're even judging me, but they're definitely going to be going, uh oh, where's this going? Right. Like, mm -hmm. this is a white guy talking about a black woman. Like, I don't know if that's OK. <laughs> so immediately you have to you have to really be careful uh, with the things you say. And, you know, if a black guy were to get up and talk about his white wife, they're, they're not going to have that tension. There's not going to be that fear. And I know where it comes from. I'm again, I'm not saying, you know, oh, my God, I'm censored. Poor me at all. It's 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 fine. It is what it is. But it just there are double standards out there that I deal with on a daily basis and that I see. And, and it's it's just interesting. Um, it's, and I think it's mostly we're moving in positive directions. Um, but that is something that, you know, you asked how I <clears throat> you asked how I sort of on a on a daily basis confront double standards and or deal with them in my in my head. Um, I just try to be aware of those things. I try to be aware of the fact that of my privileges, of the and not feel, you know, it's very easy as a male cis white male comedian these days to feel like persecuted, like, uh oh, it's harder for me to get booked now because I'm a white man. Everyone's and it's just it, that's not true. That narrative is it's still if you're a white white man, you still have all the privileges that you used to have. And so I try to remember that I try to be open to and cognizant of aware of all of the double standards that are affecting people who don't have the privileges that I have and try to be sort of, you know, grateful for the things that I have and and understand if things are changing and and those privileges are starting to be, you know, less less easy than they used to be. It used to be if you were a, a straight white man, you just knew that you were going to get booked on every show. And now there are shows that are queer only. Now there are shows that are that are woman only, um, people of color only. And it's very easy to fall into this trap of feeling, again, feeling person, feeling like a victim. Um, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not a victim. You know, my life is still pretty, pretty easy. I have a lot of privileges. And so I try to be aware of that and to see what's going on around me and understand uh, how that applies to me contextually in this, this, you know, in this industry that is at this industry and this culture uh, that surrounds me and that I live in. I appreciate that a lot, that you're able to recognize the privileges and not necessarily paint yourself as a victim, which can be so easy to do when you're feeling like sometimes you're persecuted, no matter what gender identity or culture you're from, it happens to everybody. But what's different here is the ability to recognize that that might be happening. You're falling under a certain point of view but pulling yourself out of it and in a sense humbling yourself and times have really changed I think back to in the early 2000s when everyone was saying oh that's so gay in a more casual way whereas now if you say that that's not really acceptable and I don't think that's necessarily being PC or not wanting to get canceled but it's more about recognizing how hurtful it can actually be and something I personally do is I worked with children for many, many years when I was younger. And I, because of that, I stopped saying the word retarded. But I remember when I was a teenager, 
everyone says that. Oh, that's so retarded, or you're retarded. But then after I started working with children who were actually disabled and were retarded, I realized, well, why am I using that identifier as a joke? And I think when we're able to learn from those moments and really shift the way we use our languaging, that's being respectful to others. And, you know, there's a whole other side of it where, you know, don't take things too personally or be so serious about certain things. And I think there's a time and place for everything. If you want to say certain words in your own private time where you're with other people or by yourself, then by all means, if everyone's okay with it. But then there's also how you choose to vocalize your thoughts and opinions in a more public manner. I'm not going to go here and spiel a bunch of really aggressive words. Not that I do that personally, but I think that's the whole idea of perception where it's so different for everyone and being able to manage your perceptions internally and externally is so important. And I really liked what you brought up about the sexism piece because my friend, she's Asian, but married to a white man. She changed her last name to his name. um, And after she did that, she got way more, people asking her about jobs on her LinkedIn. More people were networking and connecting with her. She didn't have her picture up. And when she sent in her resumes, she was um, a lot more people responded to her versus when she had her Asian last name. So I think things like that, maybe not a lot of people recognize that they might have these biases. So I'm glad that we're able to talk about this kind of topic today because it really sheds light to, well, Do you have some unconscious biases that you don't realize? And hopefully for our listeners to think about. It's funny that you bring that up because I've I've been in exactly that situation in that I actually, my day job, I manage a spa and health club at a resort. And so I do a lot of hiring and um, I've been there for, for many years. And when I started, I remember the first time that I was going to to hire people. I was hiring for a fitness attendant, like a receptionist, um, the receptionist for the health club. And I had a stack of, at the time, physical applications. Back then, it was uh, everything was paper. And I remember going through them and I was putting, I was separating them into yes and no piles, like, you know, people to potentially contact and then just a no pile. And I, I noticed, and this was the first time I'd ever done hiring. So I wasn't, I wasn't aware of it right away. It was horrifying to me that I noticed that I was putting stereotypical white names were mostly ending up in the yes pile, that it was just something where as soon as I saw a name that seemed familiar to me, you know, John Smith versus a, a name that was more ethnic and unfamiliar, that I was there was a bias there. And and some of it made sense. Some of it was, you know, someone who had worked in a, a health club before something was obviously going in the yes pile, regardless of their name. But if people had no experience and they were kind of equal, I noticed that I was just I had this automatic instinct to put a a typical Caucasian sounding name into the yes pile. And I, I think that that was something that I had to immediately confront about myself. And it was really, really eye opening for me that like this is something that I don't even I felt that I was very woke. All you know, my best friend growing up was Asian. Um, I've always, you know, I, I, I've grown up in the Bay area in a very liberal area, San Francisco, where 
obviously gay culture is is really accepted um so i just felt like i was someone who was above it all you know like oh i i i'm not racist i don't have any issues with that but there are unconscious biases that we're just not that a lot of times we're just not aware of and you don't there's you know it, it takes something very visceral like realizing that i'm having an effect potentially on people's lives you know i'm potentially adding to the problem by choosing automatically choosing a white person over a person of color just because that's what i'm comfortable with or what you know whatever bias i have um for it for a position and so you know, and I'm just one guy in a pretty liberal area who didn't know that he had these biases. So think of how many people there are in the, that same position across the country and across the world who have a stack of applications in front of them and don't realize that they're making those decisions unconsciously. And if you ask them, they would say, oh, I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist person. I don't have biases, but they don't they're just not aware of it. They just don't even they didn't notice that. And I'm, I'm thankful that I noticed that early on. One thing that San Francisco is doing now uh, for any city positions, they're taking names off of applications so that you can't see the person's name for a city position. If you're a if you're a hiring oh. manager, you can only look at their experience that anything that 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 would indicate their ethnicity is taken off. Um, and I think that's really smart. You know, I, I, I want to we're not supposed to a good, you know, I notice people are putting their pictures on applications a lot. And that's something that I really wish people wouldn't do because I just think that's not how we want to be judging someone's qualifications for a position is based on their appearance, their age, their, you know, gender, their, their looks. So it is something that absolutely is pervasive, even though a lot of us aren't aware of it. That's a great point you brought up. When I was putting my resume together, I found a template where you could put pictures. And I asked my friend, oh, what do you think about putting your picture up? I've never done that before. And she said, oh, don't put it up because you look really young and people won't take you seriously. And as sad as that sounds, it's, there's actually a lot of truth to it because we do have these biases where another example I can give you is one of my really good friends. She's a dentist and she looks young. She is young, but... Um, my mom wanted to do a procedure and I recommended her to my friend and my mom was like oh she's so young is she even going to be any good and I said well you know there's always pros and cons someone who's more experienced might feel more comfortable they've seen a lot more patients and so on but then also someone who is young is potentially more innovative or they're more motivated to learn or to look at the small details and they're very particular you know, those types of traits and factors can be ch interchangeable no matter how old you are. But when I explained this to her, it did help her open up her mind a little bit to understand that, well, you're literally judging her based on how she looks or how young she is, but you don't know any of her qualifications. It's like a prodigy. What if there's this kid who's 10 years old, but they got their MBA from Harvard at 10 years old? You can't necessarily judge that. I mean, when I was 10, I don't even know what I was doing back then. <laughs> So I think, you know, for me as a therapist, when I work with my clients, if I see someone who's Asian, female, at a young age, I don't necessarily think, oh my goodness, I'm going to relate with them right away. I'm going to understand everything. They're going to look up to me like an older sister because they could very well have had an extremely different upbringing compared to what I did or what I had, regardless if we look similar or not. And I think for listeners, 
when we think about how do we manage our perceptions, it's like you said, just recognizing them and maybe even asking yourself, well, what if this person was white? What if this person was male? What if this person was transgender? And how would that change your opinion of this person or this situation? And you might be surprised to realize that, wow, there is going to be a bit of a shift based on that identifier. It's a, <laughs> this is a very big topic to cover, but thank you so much just for some of your insights today. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. It, it is really interesting. Um, one thing that I was thinking about, I'll just briefly throw in there. It, when I was uh, had just graduated from college, I went to UC Davis and I was working mm-hmm. in this little town next next door called Woodland. And I was um, as a substitute teacher kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I remember one thing that struck me was all of the kids in this one school, when I would go there, they were all young. It was, I think, first or second grade. And they would all call me Mrs. Rogers. And I thought it was funny. And I didn't know why at first. But that was because they they assumed that all teachers were female because they had only ever had female teachers. And so they thought Mrs. Wow. was just what you called a teacher. And so they would say Mrs. Rogers all the time. And I just thought thought it was funny. You know, it's we we make these assumptions that that from a very young age, you know, whether it's that nurses are all female, right, or that teachers are all female or that firemen are all men, you know, police officers are all men, whatever it is. Uh, we a lot of this is sort of ingrained from a from a really young age that we have these expectations uh, based on what the media kind of shows us or what we've experienced in our lives at, at that age. And I just thought that was interesting. I think a lot of this comes from from a really young age. We just you know, we're sort of bombarded with these expectations and these and these stereotypes that we're not even aware of in a lot of ways. So yeah, this was an interesting conversation. It was it's cool to to think about. I hadn't even thought about that in years. And that's just goes to show it's something that's been ingrained in us. And as woke as we might be, or liberal or whatever it may be, we all have these subconscious biases. I do as a therapist, everyone does. But how we decide to manage them, how we decide to set our expectations is, I think, what's more important. There's nothing wrong with having biases. It's what makes us who we are. But how we decide to put them on people is a whole different question. And that's something you have control over presently. You might not have control over how you grew up, the culture you were in, how you were born. And that's okay. We don't have to beat ourselves up for that. So thank you so much for being here today, Shane. How can my listeners find you? Uh, well, the best way, you can go to shanerogers.net, and that is where I'll post any upcoming shows. Right now, I'm just doing really small shows to work on a bunch of new material. Um, and then as I once I get comfortable with the new stuff that I'm doing, uh, then I'll be booking some, some bigger shows. Uh, so a lot of those won't show up on my website. But the best place to find me is at Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. It's a, a really fun podcast, and I encourage everyone to check it out. And to support my podcast and help reach others, please follow and share it with anyone who is looking to learn a bit more about mental health. For any listeners who are visual learners or would like some more resources, I invite you to read my blog posts on Shervin.ca and to follow my Twitter at HelloShervin and my Instagram at TherapyWithShervin for updates. Bye, everyone.